Hey guys, welcome to episode 69 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. It took us five takes to not laugh, so I'm happy that we just got through that. I have no idea why we are laughing the way we are. We're just... You, because I said <sighs> the word 69 and we're 12 years old. That's why. <laughs> no, okay. That's not it. <laughs> so we wanted to send out a big thank you to everyone who left us good reviews. We actually just recently found out how to get our reviews from outside the United States. So it was really rewarding to just see a whole bunch of positive reviews coming from the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia. It really made us feel so happy. Yeah, it's like really cool, actually, the way we were able to do that, because, you know, the U.S. of A. is not the only place that, you know, listens to us, so it was nice. Yes, it was really nice, and we appreciated that, because sometimes the reviews aren't always the best, so when you hear the positive, it really kind of keeps you going. Yeah, you know, it just keeps driving you to get better, So, and, and I know it's always good to get the you know, some of the feedback and just try to make us better. But, you know. Yes, constructive criticism always works. Always. (laughs) All right. So if you love the show and you haven't left a review yet, it would be awesome if you could do that for us. Or if you could tell a friend or a fellow true crime freak about us, that would be absolutely amazing. And if you're feeling super generous, you could donate to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple and get a whole bunch of bonus episodes every month. For Patreons that donate $1 to $2, you get one bonus episode a month. But $5 and up, you get two bonus episodes a month. So if you want more of us, you can just go check us out there. Okay, so today we have a brutal case for you. We will be covering the case of one of the youngest serial killers America has ever seen. But we are not covering the case from the perspective of the killer, but from the one who got away. The killer's third victim, that we know of, was able to survive her attack with the help of her neighbors. But that is what made her vulnerable. After she got away, the killer escalated and intensified his crimes. But his main goal was to take down the only woman that could identify him. And he was going to stop at nothing to finish the job the second time around. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Denise and John Sam Callie met in 1986 in Allentown, Pennsylvania, when John got a job working for Denise's brother's limo service company. Eventually, the two got married and took the business over for themselves. They bought a house that was about a mile away from the office and only four doors down from Denise's mother. So now they could walk to work or to Denise's mother's house whenever they wanted. And walking to work was something that the couple often did. That's so, that's adorable. I mean, that is. That's cool. I couldn't imagine, though, it must be crazy, like, going to work with the person you live with and are married to because you are always together. Yeah, but maybe that, you know, sometimes it could work in the benefit as well, you know, you know that's it makes true. the bond stronger and an understanding of responsibilities at the workplace. That is true. You know? As long as it doesn't bleed over, it's right. good. Like, kind of like, I have no idea what it's like being a teacher. But like, you know, I, I could only I could try to understand, but I really don't know. Yeah, that's know? true. So it is good that you can like talk to each other about like what's really going on. Exactly. Sometimes I talk to you about what I'm frustrated about, but I'm like, but you don't understand. Exactly. Yeah, I guess you're right. So this brings us to the summer of 1993. On June 12th, the Sam Callies left for a sailing trip, leaving their large colonial home unattended. When they returned five days later, they felt as soon as they walked in their home that something was off. John went to bring their bags upstairs to the bedroom, and Denise went into the kitchen to get herself a drink. It's my kind of woman. That is when she noticed that there was an open bottle of alcohol on their counter. So this is curious because they didn't leave that bottle there before they left. Actually, it was a bottle of whiskey, and the couple got that as a gift, and they don't really like whiskey, so they knew for a fact that they hadn't even taken the plastic off of the bottle. That's interesting. So it wasn't them. Hmm. So they also didn't have anyone coming over to house it for them. So sometimes you can write that off as, oh, the person that was house sitting for us just left it there, but nobody was doing that for them. I mean, that is weird. Super weird. So that means that someone must have come into their home while they were away. 
Denise calls out to her husband and asks him to come into the kitchen. She showed him the bottle and asked him to check the entire house. They could have been robbed or the person could still be there. So John began searching their large home room by room. He finally reached their bedroom again. So, so far he had found nothing missing and nobody in the house. But when he gets to the bedroom, he's most concerned because that's where he kept his seven guns that he had. And when he went to check inside the closet where he kept them, he realized that they were all missing. I mean, that's pretty, that's a big deal. Seven guns. Yeah, that's a big deal because you have to report that. Oh, yeah. So the Sam Callies call the police to report the break-in and the missing guns, right? Because you don't want to be responsible for anything that happens with those guns. When the Allentown police get there, they ask the Sam Callies to step outside while they did a routine search of the property. When they were done, they informed the couple that there was no signs of forced entry. So it had to have been someone who knew how to get in their house or knew that they would be away. So this kind of is more unnerving because someone was watching them on top of everything else. Right. Either that or it's somebody that they know that's in there. Yeah. You know? So the couple's minds immediately went to two workers that they had hired to finish their basement. Um, John Kelly told the police that the men had done a bad job. So the ending conversation was not the best, but the men would have known how to get in through the basement. And they had a reason to get back at them because the relationship wasn't that good after the job was done. The police thanked them for the information and told them that the men would be questioned and a car would be assigned to the street for the next few nights. And the police said, don't forget to lock your doors and windows. Because at that time in 1993, people really did, especially in like the west side of Allentown, leave their windows open a lot. I would never do it. Never, never, never. Ever. Like we're on the first floor here where we live. Absolutely no windows stay open while I'm sleeping. Never. No, I think we tried it once because it was so hot. Our AC was broken (laughs) and I was terrified the whole time. We couldn't sleep. Couldn't sleep. Yeah. It's different. Our old apartment, we were on the third floor, and it was glorious. Oh, it was like amazing. all the windows were always open. It was so great. Yep. I kind of miss that. <laughs> so do <Yeah>. I. <laughs> Not how high the rent was, but no. the apartment. <laughs> right. So the police actually do immediate investigations, and they ask the men where they were for the five days that the Sam Callies were away on their sailing trip. And the men have two completely separate alibis, and they're backed up by family members and people outside and receipts and things like that. So they don't think it was these men. The police are going to tell the couple that they think most likely it was teenagers just looking for a house to break into. And the fact that only the guns were missing and they were drinking alcohol kind of alludes to the fact that it was just someone that was looking to just break in and have fun right more like versus malicious right it was kind of random a random act than actually like somebody that was kind of pissed off (laughs) about employment you know exactly so of course they're going to be on the lookout for those guns that are out there and um that's probably the most dangerous thing though there's now seven guns on the street yeah that these people are not supposed to have and they do so a week goes by and the sam callies are trying hard as they can to forget what happened to them It was actually pretty easy because they were swamped with business. Summer is one of the busiest times for any type of limo company because you have weddings and proms and trips into the city. They handled a lot of like trips in and out of Philadelphia. So John, on June 28th, 1993, had an appointment to drive a client to Philadelphia. And this man, who was a regular for them, he was undecided about whether or not he was going to drive to Atlantic City after being in Philadelphia. That's like a little rough. Always stay on the other side of the bridge, buddy. Atlantic (laughs) City is not what you think it is. Well, back in 93, it definitely is. I guess it was a little bit better than it is when it was when I was in college because it was pretty rough when we used to go. I mean, yeah. (laughs) We thought it was cool, but it is in retrospect, we made some big mistakes. And to be fair, I have never been there. So, which well, is crazy John, to me. it's completely okay. Yeah, well, maybe now. I would say the highlight of Atlantic City is Carmine's, but there's one in the city. So, right. we can go anytime. So, because the man was probably going to be out the entire night with his friends, there was a strong possibility that John was not going to be home that night. And that happened often. So, this is a common occurrence, not something that's different. And in her mind, Denise wasn't nervous because she still thought it had been the workers. Like the Sam Callies were convinced that the workers had done it and that their alibi wasn't really 
solid. Right. I mean, I guess that's always a fear, right? I mean, you want to have trust that the police are saying, you know, the truth and that you don't have to worry anymore, um, you know, because they got the car outside, you know, they got the squad car. Right. And I think you always want in the back of your head to like know who did it because that makes you feel better. The unknown is a little bit more scary. And not to mention your husband's not there. So you're by yourself. So I could see like you being on edge. Yeah, I hate staying in here by myself. So John had left from work that night. So that left Denise alone to walk home. And she leaves the office late because there was a lot of work to do. So now it was not her recent break-in that had her nerves on end as she was walking home. But it was the atmosphere in the neighborhood. Everyone was scared and on edge. And it wasn't because of their break-in. In a crime that sounded like it was ripped from the latest Stephen King novel, 15-year-old Charlotte Schmoyer was murdered while on her paper route for the morning call. The day before, the girl's body had been found in a wooded area behind one of her customers' homes. The woman had noticed that the teenage girl's newspaper cart was overturned beneath her front window for about 30 minutes. And this was unlike Charlotte because she always was really quick about delivering her papers and getting through her route as quickly as possible. So she stepped outside and tried to call out for the girl, but Charlotte never responded to her. The woman called the morning call to tell them that she didn't know where Charlotte was. And the paper said that they would call her house. And if she wasn't there, they would notify the police. Unfortunately, that was what they had to do because the girl wasn't at her house. The police came to the customer's house to do a preliminary search. And that's when they found the girl's body in the woods. Based on the cart, footprints, location of the body, and her fallen Walkman, investigators deduced that the girl was confronted in front of the customer's house, and then she was approached by her murderer. There's also a strong possibility that he might have approached her from behind, and she didn't realize he was coming because she had her headphones on listening to music. And that's when she ran to the back of the woman's house, and he chased her. Once he caught her, he dragged her into the woods, where he ripped off her clothes and she was raped. After the rape, she was stabbed 22 times. And on the other side of the wooded area was the high school that Charlotte went to. And there's a strong probability that that's what she was trying to reach when she ran into the woman's backyard. Like, it was just on the other side of the woods. Well, that's pretty crazy. What's what's even worse is the fact that no one even heard that happen. Like, this whole thing happening, right? I mean, I mean, it's pretty close to people's residence. Yeah, the audacity to commit this crime in the morning, like in daylight, you are approaching someone who the neighborhood knows, like all the neighbors know, oh, my paper's coming. Some people might be waiting for her to get to their door. And this guy has like the balls, I guess, I mean, to set to like run, get her and chase her into someone's backyard into the woods and then rape her and stab her 22 times that's what i'm saying like it, to do that is difficult anywhere but it's even you know it's even harder when there's people around homes around a high school or you know what i mean like mm-hmm. that, that's pretty odd to me and it wasn't like this was a, a quick unfortunately this took a long amount of time for the man to do to her so he wasn't nervous about being caught nope this talks a lot about the kind of killer he was and the psychopathy he he has. It's yeah. pretty scary that this guy is now out on the loose and he would do it to a 15-year-old girl. So investigators were able to collect DNA from the girl's fingernails and body. However, as we know, taught to us all by the OJ trial from the early 90s, DNA was new, rarely tested, and hardly ever trusted. But nonetheless, the investigators had it. And that's the most important part. The school and community were broken at the news of the brutal crime of Charlotte. In the newspaper, Charlotte's murder was very quickly connected with the rape and murder that had occurred the summer before. And that was the murder of Joan Berghardt, who was a 29-year-old nurse's aide that had been raped and bludgeoned to death in her East Allentown home. Her murder was never solved but was very similar to the attack made on Charlotte Schmoyer. But the attack on Joan Burghart was similar to someone else's story we've already heard about. 
On August 5, 1992, Joan had called the police because when she returned to her first floor apartment after driving home a friend, she knew that someone had been inside since she left. Sound familiar? A little bit. A fan that she knew she had turned on was turned off. The patio door was left open and the screen of the door had been torn. She was also missing about $50 from her dresser drawer. The police filed the report, but they were never able to catch the party responsible. At 11.30 on Sunday, August 9th, now that's four days after the initial report that she made with police about the break-in, Joan's neighbor called the police. She said that the girl's stereo had been playing loudly for three days. She was not answering her door, and the first night the stereo was on, the neighbor had heard what sounded like somebody physically attacking the girl or hitting the walls and was screaming. The screen on the patio door was still cut open. When the police entered the apartment, they found the 29-year-old girl. She was laying on her stomach on the floor in front of her couch. There was blood spatter on the couch, walls, and floor. She had been raped. Her shorts were ripped at the crotch and lifted above her hips. She was nude from the waist down. After the rape, she suffered extensive skull fractures and damage to the brain. She was hit in the head a total of 37 times. The medical examiner stated that the force of the blows were so deliberate and tremendous that as the instrument came down, it embedded the hair between the fracture and the skull. I mean, that's pretty intense. That's a lot of anger. I, oh, absolutely. Even both of those attacks, are kind of, they're very, very similar yes. in the ferocity of both victims. It's really sad. Yeah. And then you can see why they made a connection between these two victims. So DNA had been found under her fingernails, and semen was also found on her body in the same location where it was found on Charlotte Schmoyer. So um, this seems to be like the MO of the guy is that semen is found on the victim's leg and then on some of their clothing. So that also is a connection between the two crimes. The hardworking, close-knit, blue-collar town of Allendale was on edge. Someone was preying on the women of their town. And that's, it's interesting because the first victim's 29 and the second is 15. So it's interesting that the victimology of this killer is kind of all over the place. Maybe he's just opportunistic, maybe, where it's just whatever he can pretty much get away with and not have to worry maybe right so maybe he's opportunistic or maybe it could just be like a hate of women yeah could be and that's where the overkill comes from right and because all of these other things were happening it's why the break-in was the last thing on denise sam Callie's mind i mean i think that's also like a psychological thing she doesn't want to believe that it could ever be connected because that would mean she's in like a lot of danger So while she's walking the one mile home, she is on edge and she feels like someone's right behind her. I mean, that's a very common thing. You feel like someone's behind you when you're walking home late at night. It'd be perfect to have Invisiware. It would. would. (laughs) Not to mention the fact that she's walking a mile too. Like a mile is still a mile. You know what I mean? Yeah, she's walking home a long way. Yeah, that's a long uh, trip. In the dark. Yeah. So despite her jumpiness, the 38-year-old Denise got home just fine. She was looking forward to a quiet night in. After she made herself dinner, she sat down on the couch to do some paperwork for the business. Because it was late June in Pennsylvania, and because she just cooked dinner, Denise was hot, and her house didn't have air conditioning. She opened the front window in her living room, the one that looked out over her front porch, and she began to do some paperwork on the couch. But she was exhausted, and she fell asleep. After waking about an hour later, she chose to put away all of her things and head up to bed, exhausted. But she had forgotten to shut the window. Denise climbed up the stairs and went into her bedroom, where she fell asleep for the second time that night. But it was that home alone, jumpy sleep that you tend to have when you're used to sleeping with your partner next to you and they're not there anymore. So she was in and out of sleep, thinking that she was hearing noises. However, hours into her slumber, she awoke with a jolt. This time, she knew she had heard something. And it wasn't just the creaks of an old house. There was something or somebody in her walk-in closet. Denise decided that she needed to make her move before whatever or whoever was in the closet knew that they had awoken her. So she bolted for the door. 
but the problem was she had to pass by the closet door before she got to her bedroom door to escape. Before she could reach the door out of the room, a man jumped out from her closet and grabbed her. She was able to break free of his grasp by twisting and kicking her way out. She was able to fly down her stairs and run out her front door. Denise remembered thinking, I'm out. I made it out. But just as she made it down her front steps, the assailant grabbed her and flipped her on her back. He got on top of her and used his knees to hold her down. He pushed down on her mouth as he choked her and punched her in the face four times. Denise tried to fight back, but the man easily overpowered her. And on her front lawn, he pulled down his pants and raped her. On her front lawn. I mean, this person is just, like, out of his mind. Yeah. Not only because of what he's doing, obviously, but he's so, I I guess, what's the word? Like, he's just brazen? I don't know. Like, he's just like, who the f do you think you are like to do all these things and especially in front of people like he doesn't even care if he's caught or not that's what it seems like like he doesn't give a crap i can't believe that he's doing this she screamed and bit the inside of his right arm eventually making enough of a commotion that her neighbors ran outside of their homes with their flashlights they all knew what was happening in the town and the death of Charlotte Schmoyer, well, her body was only found the day before, so people are super on edge. So to hear a woman screaming is going to draw people out of their houses. Absolutely, yeah. Scared by the presence of the neighbors, the assailant runs back into the house and outside the back patio door. Now, that's really interesting because for him to do that, he must know the layout of the house. Right. He proving mu- that that was the guy that was right. in there. The originally, yes. yes. So Denise ran inside of her house and called the police, with the safety of her neighbors close by. The police came and searched the Sam Callie house, finding a large butcher knife wrapped in a paper napkin from their own kitchen lying on the floor outside of the bathroom. So it seemed like the assailant intended to use the knife on Denise, but when the two were struggling and she had broken free the first time, he must have dropped the knife. Luckily for her, he did drop the knife, or else he probably would have used it on the front lawn. Right, exactly. And that would have been the end of that. John rushed home from his assignment in Atlantic City to comfort his wife, who had been rushed to the hospital. She was given a rape kit and had her wounds tended to. She had been beaten severely in the head. She had strangulation marks on her neck and a deeply cut lip from a punch she took to the face. Once Denise was released from the hospital, her and John decided that they should not go home for the next few days. And they actually stay with family members. Smart. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't know. I wouldn't want to return there. No, you don't even know where this guy is at this point. When Denise is questioned by the police, she described the man as being young, a teen or in his early 20s. And that's quite interesting because this guy's really young. And that could explain why he's so brazen, like you said, with his crimes. Because to be a killer and to be so young without, you know, like your frontal lobe development even being finished yet, that your impulsivity, you just can't control it. And that would explain why he commits the crimes where he does. It's like a think before you act. Like he can't. He can't can't control that. that. Right. But then that also explains that he's so rageful. Right, exactly. She said he looked white with dark hair. And more than anything else, she said she can never forget the dead in his eyes. But she said he looked like a normal guy other than that. Besides that, there's nothing else she could say about him. It was even hard for her to produce a sketch because she was kind of out of it from all the blows she took to the head. The detectives tell John that the only reason Denise is alive is because she fought so hard and she was able to make it outside and the screams awakened the neighbors and they came out with their flashlights. But most likely, if the body of Charlotte Schmoyer hadn't been found the day before, a lot of those people probably wouldn't have come out of their homes. I mean, we don't really know that for sure. I mean, because we don't know the neighborhood for all you for like, all we know. A lot of times people think it's a domestic thing and they just want to stay out of it. Yeah. But I mean, if you're hearing like a commotion outside, I know for a fact, if I heard something like that outside, I'd go out there and just just peek. If anything, just peek just to see what's up. Yeah. You know what I mean? So when Denise and John Sam Callie chose to return to their home about a week after the attack, 
They did so with two handguns, one for Denise and the other for John. Denise was unable to sleep unless she felt safe, and she felt a lot safer with the gun next to her. But while John went to work during the day, Denise walked to her parents' house, which was, like we said, only four houses away, until John could be home with her again. She was suffering from both physical and emotional pain following the attack, but still she or the investigators were not putting the connection together between her break-in, the attack, and the other two murders. This is mostly because the other attacks happened on the east side of town and the Sam Callies lived miles away on the west side of town. But just two weeks after Denise was attacked, the unknown assailant struck again in eastern Allentown. The victim was a 47-year-old woman named Jessica Jean Fortney. She was found in the early morning hours of July 14, 1993. She had been found in her bed, half-naked as the other victims were, her clothes in almost the exact position as Joan Burkhardt. Jessica's face was swollen and black and blue, her features almost unrecognizable. Dry blood formed around her lips, eyes, nose, and neck. Blood spatter was present on the wall behind the couch, again the same way it was in Joan Burkhardt's apartment. It seemed that the assailant had got in through the window on the first floor, same as in Denise's house. When the crime scene was deconstructed, it told a horrific story. The assailant had raped Jessica, and then, similar to what he did to Denise, he pinned her down with his knees. Based on the blood spatter patterns, he then violently swung his fists down on the victim, alternating right and left. There was an excess of 50 wounds on the victim. Now, it seems like every time there's more and more wounds on the victims that we're finding. So that shows that his rage is building. And one thing to explain the building of rage is that Denise got away. That's one of yeah, the things. That's what I was thinking actually as well. Was the fact that he didn't he wasn't able to carry out yeah. what he set out to do. Now it's interesting and we're not gonna find this out until after a lot of things go down, so I'm gonna save it, but just know we're gonna come back to this moment and why the escalation happened. So put a bookmark here. Gotcha. <laughs> So because of the M.O. present in all cases, the murders and the one attempted murder with Denise Sam Callie, investigators are going to put it together that Allendale now has a serial killer on its hands and he's extremely aggressive. So the FBI was called in to consult on the case. Just four days after the murder of Jessica Fortney, the Sam Callies were terrorized in their home again. Denise and John Sam Kelly were scared because Denise was the only person that could ID the killer, and they were nervous that he was going to come back and finish what he had started. So to make Denise feel better, they had gotten two handguns and a state-of-the-art home security system. That night, Denise was awoken in the night. She had been very jumpy and thought maybe it was just her scaring herself awake again, but then she heard the noise again. She woke up her husband, John, and told him that there was someone in the house walking around on the first floor. The couple each grabbed their guns and listened intently for the sounds to come again. And they did. There was someone walking around. John said he was going to see who it was. And with his gun in hand, he began to walk out of the bedroom. With Denise behind him, he made his way down the stairs. And that was when the alarm from the home security system started blaring. John ran down the stairs and noticed that the front door was open. He ran outside and in a circle around his home, trying to chase the man who had attacked and raped his wife and was a possible serial killer. But the man had gotten away. He met Denise back at the front of the house and told her that he was gone. Shortly thereafter, the police arrived at the home because the passcode was never entered into the home security system. And they told them that someone had entered their house again, but they hadn't caught him. And he ran out. He must have ran out when he heard them coming out of the bedroom. I mean, that's pretty crazy. 
I mean, that's like... Uh, the audacity to do yeah. all of this stuff is yeah. so insane. It's like lightning doesn't strike, you know, in the same place twice. Well, this dude... <laughs> right. If it is him, then he's... That's the second time he's been there. It's kind of crazy. Right. Whenever this is the plot of a movie, I know we say like, oh my God, this is like a movie. But whenever this is a plot of a movie where it's one person coming back, like one, like obsessively on the person that got away, you're like, no way. This would never happen. Like Michael and Halloween, right? Yeah. There's no way that this person's going to come back. But he did. I mean, you got to think about it. He's rageful because she got away. But it's also maybe because... He felt, or he or she felt that. No, it's Denise definitely was a guy. A, okay, so Denise was. Oh yes, yeah, right. I'm sorry. Why did I say that? It's okay. You're just trying to be inclusive. I like that. <laughs> but no, but seriously, I mean, she's a loose end because she can ID him. Oh yeah. So maybe that would bring on a second coming of him coming to the house. That's definitely giving him motive to do so. Right. Hundred percent. So although nothing happened at the Sam Callies that night, a strong message was sent. The killer was determined to finish what he had begun with Denise. His intentions were to kill the only person, like you said, that could ID him for the murders that he had committed. But this is so terrifying. And Denise and John also, because sometimes when a crime like this happens, this especially a rape, it enters into your marriage. And husband and wife suffer this together, I believe, because I'm sure it affects your marriage on so many different levels. How could they start healing when this guy who tried to kill you and did rape you, is on the loose, and he's out to get you again. Yeah. There is going to be no peace in their life until this guy is taken down. It's true. So the police of Allentown were adamant that they were not going to allow anyone to hurt Denise Sam Callie again. They assigned an officer to stay at the Sam Callie house throughout the night to make the couple feel safe and to catch a killer that was terrorizing their home. The young officer's name that was put on this important detail was Brian Lewis. He said that he was proud to be put on this assignment and he was eager to take this man off the streets. Lewis would arrive at the house at around 1130 and sit in darkness as he waited for the man to arrive through the front window as he usually did with all the homes he entered. On the first few nights, he was diligently staring at the window. As the nights passed on, he took to reading with the help of his flashlight. On the twelfth night that Lewis was there, he decided that something had to be done soon because the higher-ups in the police station were going to reassign him because nothing was happening. In fact, many in the department thought that after the man's second botched attempt, attempt, he probably had given up on trying to get Denise again. To make things tempting for the man, Lewis opened the front window that was open the first night of the attack on Denise. On this night, he did not read. He waited patiently to see if his plan would work. And it did. At around 1.20 a.m., Lewis heard something behind him as he was staring at the front window. It was a tug on the back patio door, the one that he had used to, like, get through in the past. Okay. So, like, remember, he raped her, and then he ran through the house and went out the back door. Right. He was probably seeing, like, okay, is this open? Can I use this as a getaway? I mean, that. all right, he's starting to get a little smarter with... Well, that's probably what he did the first time. You're right. So the patio door was locked and reinforced this time. So there was no way to get in or out from there. But now Brian Lewis knew the killer was there. So with his gun ready, Lewis hid behind a wall in the hallway as he heard the man climb quietly through the front window. As he heard the man climb quietly through the front window that was open like an invitation for him. At one point, the killer walked right past Lewis. But because he was not acclimated to the dark, he hadn't noticed the plainclothes police officer. As he passed him, Lewis stepped out from behind the wall and yelled, Put your hands on your head. The man froze. He began to raise his hands, but then at the last second, grabbed a gun that was in his waistband and began wildly shooting at Lewis, who returned fire. Denise and John were awoken by the sounds of the shoot-off that was happening on their first floor. Terrified, they huddled together at the far corner of their bedroom, guns in both of their hands. John put his body in front of his wife's and told her that if the man who hurt her came through that door, that they would both shoot him. Finally, the shooting stopped, and the couple heard footsteps bounding up the stairs right for them. They were shaking, hoping that the right man would walk through the door. 
Finally, a knock came to the door. It was Officer Lewis. He told the couple that it was him. I have him locked in the kitchen right now, and I need you two to stay up here. Don't come out for anyone but myself. I have backup coming. And as soon as Lewis told Sam Callies the situation, they heard banging coming from the kitchen below them. It felt like their house, that its whole foundation was being shook as the man was trying to escape from the kitchen. The Sam Callies responded to the officer that they were going to stay inside their bedroom. But then that's when they heard a shatter and Lewis went running back down the stairs. About a minute later, Lewis came back into the bedroom and let the couple know it was safe to come out. He brought them down into the kitchen, where it was clear that the killer had escaped through the window panes of the back door that he was initially trying to open. The jagged glass was covered in blood, and there was a trail of blood that led onto their deck and off of their property. Lewis explained that the man was either shot or injured by the glass. Either way, he was hurt badly, as seen by all the blood that he had left behind. He would have to seek treatment at the hospital, or he would bleed to death. He let the Sam Callies know that all hospitals and doctor's offices in the vicinity were told to inform law enforcement about any male who had come in with wounds from glass or gunshot. I love that they could do that, you know? Because if anybody goes there, you're screwed, you're caught. Right, or you die. Right. At 3.30 a.m., about two hours after the fourth incident at the Sam Callie house, a man stumbled into an ER only a few miles away. He had a very deep and large vertical wound at the center of his forearm. The nurse, knowing that the police were on the lookout that night for a man that had a wound from glass, asked him what his name was. He told her that his name was Harvey and that he had just cut himself on some glass. She informed the doctor, who told security, that they may have the man that everyone's looking for. Catching on to the fact that he might have been found out, the killer tried to make a run for it out of the hospital, but he was badly wounded and was easily captured by the officer who was stationed at the hospital. Officer Lewis was brought in to identify the man. Lewis confirmed that this was the man whom he had had a shootout with at the Sam Cali house. This man was identified as Harvey Miguel Robinson. He was 18 years old. Wow. 18. 18. That means when he committed the first crime, he was 17. That's insane. Yeah. That night, his wounds were tended to, and DNA evidence was collected from his body. He had deep lacerations on his arms and legs. These were obtained while trying to break through the glass to escape Officer Lewis at the Sam Cali household. He also had a healing scar in the shape of a bite mark on his upper right arm, exactly where Denise Sam Cali had bit her assailant. The next day, after a warrant was obtained, blood and hair samples were taken from Robinson and his home was searched. Now, this is no relationship to the other serial killer Robinson we covered. We've only covered two serial killers, and that's the same same last name. (laughs) Investigators found a black ski mask and a pair of gloves located under cushions of a couch, a green and purple striped rugby shirt in a laundry basket that had drops of blood on it, drops of blood within the bathroom around the laundry basket, and another pair of gloves, these ones black and rubber, blood-stained shorts and socks, and a pair of high-tech sneakers in black in the assailant's bedroom. They also found a loaded 38 semi-automatic handgun in the bedroom closet, which was registered to John Callie. So he must have stole all seven of his guns the first time. Yes, yes. When he was kind of like seeing, you know, seeing the surroundings of the house. And it was definitely um, later through ballistics, they found out that the gun he used in the shootout with Officer um, Lewis was also one of the Callie's, was one of Callie's guns. That's crazy. Yeah. Officer Lewis was able to identify the colored striped shirt, shorts, and sneakers as the ones Robinson was wearing when he tried to break in to the Sam Callie house. While he was in the house waiting for him. Denise Sam Callie then was asked if Harvey Miguel Robinson was the man who attacked and raped her, and she confirmed that it was him. Later, it was determined that the pattern at the bottom of the sneakers owned by Robinson matched the bruising patterns on the cheek of 15-year-old Charlotte Schmoyer. 
That's so sad. It is. Things became more and more clear to investigators as they looked into Robinson. The one thing that was hard for them to figure out was why there was such a large gap in time between the rape and murder of Joan Burghardt and that of Charlotte Schmoyer. They found out that during that year, Robinson was being held in juvenile detention center for burglary. And that also means that at the time of his first crime, he was only 17 years old. It was also determined that Robinson lived four blocks away from where Charlotte Schmoyer was attacked, five blocks away from Joan Burghardt, six blocks away from the Sam Callie house, and two miles from where Jessica Fortney lived. However, he did live at an address when he was younger until 1986 that was only one block away from Jessica Fortney. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so this is kind of crazy because this is like a a kid in the neighborhood and it's just kind of, you don't know who your neighbors are sometimes. That is so crazy. So creepy. Yeah. But now, so when he left the house that was only one block away from Jessica Fortney, he was 10 years old, right? And she was older. She was in her 40s. So I think that either as a child, he had a fascination with this woman or... He was going back to his childhood home for a reason. And because he was going back there and he was being filled with rageful feelings is why the murder happened to her. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But who was this boy who was responsible for terrorizing Allentown in the summer of 1993? Harvey Miguel Robinson was born December of 1974, and his family was troubled, to say the least. His father was an emotionally and physically abusive alcoholic. His parents got divorced when he was three, and Robinson's father would end up going to prison for manslaughter after beating his mistress to death. So now, this could go back to his hatred of women, because even though... Robinson's father had done all these horrible things. He still idolized him. His father was everything to him. He wanted to, he aspired to become his father. So all of the bad things that happened in his father's life were because of women in his mind. Right. The divorce, his mother's fault. The fact that his dad went to jail because of manslaughter, the mistress's fault. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, that would that would make sense. Yes. And so he was taught at a very young age that violence against women is completely normalized. Right. To because him. of what his father, you know, did. Of right. course. So I think that maybe when he was going back to his old house and he was remembering the violence that took place and the anger at his mother and this woman that his father killed, he was rageful. And that's why the first, that's why Fortney was one of the victims. I'm just so surprised at his age that he's, he's committing these murders. Well, Robinson seemed to teeter on the edge of choosing the path that his mother wanted him to take in life and wanting to impress his imprisoned father. He was good in school. He excelled a lot in academics. And he also excelled in sports, wrestling, soccer, football, cross country. He kind of did everything. He showed signs of severe conduct disorders. As he got older and stronger, his rages became more violent. His juvenile record began at nine years old, and it grew and grew until he was 17. And then, by the time he was 18 and could be charged as an adult, he had become a serial killer. His arrest included burglary and resisting arrest. During one psychiatric evaluation, Robinson stated that he enjoyed the fact that his classmates, teachers, and counselors were afraid of him and what he could do to them. He began abusing drugs and alcohol, just as his father had, which only made his impulsive, aggressive behavior worse. The sentencing of Robinson got complicated because prosecution sought the death penalty. And because he was a minor when the first murder was committed, they had to decide whether or not to charge him as an adult for that crime, which they ended up doing. Robinson was charged with numerous crimes for each victim he assaulted and murdered, and for the victim that he just assaulted. So the prosecutor chose to try all of these cases separately. In the case of Denise Sam Callie, Robinson was charged with three counts of burglary, two counts of attempted homicide, one count of rape, and multiple counts of aggravated indecent assault, and one count of a firearm not to be carried without a license. 
In the case of Charlotte Schmoyer, Robinson was charged with first-degree murder, kidnapping, rape, aggravated indecent assault, and indecent assault. In the case of Joan Burghardt and Jessica Fortney, those two were tried together. He was charged with criminal homicide, burglary, criminal trespass, rape, aggravated indecent assault, and indecent assault. Robinson was found guilty of all offenses and was sentenced to 97 years in prison and three death sentences. Three. Three. (laughs) Appeals to overturn Robinson's convictions are complicated. And his execution is being stayed because of some things that kind of went down. The one appeal that actually worked for Robinson was when he was resentenced to life in prison and not death for the murder of Joan Burkhart because he was 17 years old at the time of her murder. So now he has one death sentence off the table. So now he has two. But then in 2012, Robinson chose to waive his appeals in the cases of Charlotte Schmoyer in exchange for a life sentence and not the death penalty. And this was granted because the appeals process is very long and it costs a lot of money to taxpayers in the state. So they said, okay, we'll give, we'll waive this death penalty. He still has one on the table. However, in December of 2013, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court upheld the death penalty for the murder of Jessica Fortney. So he has one death sentence. So he's not going to get out of jail anytime soon. Right. I mean, the way I look at it is regardless if it's 15 or one, it doesn't matter. I mean, he he has it. He's, you know, going to either spend the rest of his life in prison or he's going to, you know, be executed. Oh, he totally deserves to. I mean, yeah. I mean, this kid wasted his entire life. Well, he deserves to spend the rest of his life in oh, prison. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to be, yeah. we are not going to tell you our beliefs on this death penalty thing because we're not going to get into that. In October of 2019, a judge is going to urge Robinson to donate his brain to science for further study of serial killers. Let it be the one gift you can give, the judge told him. Now, this is going to, this gets, I'm giving you guys a fair warning that this is going to get rough here. After his sentencing, Robinson was also connected to a crime that happened in the midst of all these other crimes that wasn't connected to the murders and the assault of Denise because it was very different, but he did admit to doing this. So this event is going to take place one week before the first attack of Denise Sam Callie. So this is going to be like right around the time of Charlotte Schmoyer's death. Robinson entered a home in which he intended to rape and murder a woman. When he broke into the home through a window on the first floor, he found the woman had her boyfriend sleeping in the bed. So he didn't want to attack her because there was a man in the room. Frustrated, Robinson went into her daughter's bedroom, who was five years old. He raped and strangled the girl until she passed out. Robinson must have thought that she was dead, and he fled through the window that he came in. But the girl survived. He admitted to doing this mostly because he knew that the DNA evidence that was found at the scene was going to connect him to it. So that's why he admitted to this crime. But there was another victim out there that could ID him, but he felt she was five years old. So the threat was more Denise Sam Callie than it was that little girl. But I think that act shows us how much this man was truly capable of. And it is terrifying that in a few months, he did what he was able to do. This guy and the serial killers that we know about and that we read about, they their process over time develops over decades. Sometimes the process of a serial killer develops in the time that this kid was on the earth right right and his escalation the summer of 1993 is kind of like the equivalent to when ted bundy broke out of prison and went to the sorority house like this guy went nuts so early so that's why the judge was like we need to study this kid's brain i actually yeah i mean i'm i'm shocked i'm sitting here shocked that he committed his first crime at 17 years old and then the violent murder. To do, yeah, I mean, like I said, with such ferocity, I mean, stabbing a 15-year-old child 22 times, I mean, that's crazy. 
and beating and somebody. And 38 wounds right. to someone else, I mean, 50 to another. I mean, those are extremely aggressive. I think it shows the violence. And like what I said, remember when I was like, oh, put a bookmark in here. He wasn't able to kill the person he wanted to. The violence came out on the five-year-old. He found out later the five-year-old did not die. And that's why the violence against Charlotte Schmoyer was so intense. And then I think the violence against Denise was intense and everybody else was because this man was so, he hated women. What gets me (laughs) is that if not for trying to go back to Denise, this would have been unsolved. Oh, yeah. That's terrifying. Especially since it's 1993. And even though he has, you know, there's semen, his blood, there's no way to test it properly. Well, so at least in that time. His DNA, well, his fingerprints at least had to have been in the system. But because he's a juvenile, I don't think it was given to like the criminal system of like the police. It's kept in the juvenile system. Right. So if he did commit crime, like maybe he would have been caught down the road as he committed crimes as an adult. But I don't think anyone could even contemplate that a child was doing this. So if Denise had been murdered, I think you're right. No one would even think of this guy. Yeah, nobody, I mean, was... nobody would have thought to look for a 17, 18-year-old kid. So, I mean, I mean, like I said, I mean, as we see in this case, he's killed a couple people already, tried to kill others. So, I mean, eventually I think he would have been caught. But I'm saying, let's just say for some crazy reason, he just decided to stop. Yeah. All of this would never have been solved. Yeah, this this child had the potential to be one of the most prolific serial killers yeah. in American history. And thank God, thank God, he was taken down because of the strength of Denise, but also the, the way the police department really stepped it up and had someone in that house. That was amazing that they did that. And I've yeah. never actually heard of that happening before. So it's good that they did that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I got to tell you, between this episode and our Patreon episode, it makes uh, it makes good on the uh, police's response because the last two cases we did. Um, oh yeah, the police were amazing. The police were great. So yeah. I always like that. Yeah, it is always great. All right, guys, that is the conclusion of episode sixty nine. That was a crazy one. We covered another serial killer, but I like that we did it from the perspective of the victim because that's what I think we need to do. Absolutely. Versus give this guy any type of platform. And I hope he does donate his brain to science so we can learn a little bit about what makes these people tick. Although I find that with this killer in particular, that it had to do a lot with his environment and the influence of his father. Oh, yeah. So I don't know if you would find that in someone's brain. That's just his father figure was this violent, abusive man who was taken down because of he killed a woman and I think he was seeking revenge for his father and also feeding his sick desires at the same time. Agreed. Who was a rough one. It was. Oh. <laughs> All right, guys, we hope you enjoy Super Bowl Sunday and we will be back in two weeks right on Valentine's day weekend. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Bye guys. Bye guys. <laughs>